Uh, I am glad to have the opportunity to preach again to you tonight. As I said in the sermon this morning, uh, we were talking about salvation and all that God offers, all the Bible says about our salvation. But I cautioned you that there is also a lot that is untrue as it relates to the subject of salvation. I don't think I'm breaking news when I say that. The devil has his ways of convincing people something is which is not, or that something is true when it is very much a lie. He doesn't tend to let on that he's lying to people, and that's why he's so effective at what he does. And one of the critical ways that he attacks the truth is with the truth concerning salvation. Who has it? How is it attained? What does it require? How is it maintained? All of those things are found in the Bible and what you must do to become a Christian and to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And all those things are talked in just a little bit off of a way. And just a little bit different from how the Bible says it. It sounds pretty good. And sometimes it sounds too good to be true because it is too good to be true. But it sounds quasi-biblical. It sounds religious. But it is not bible truth and you can take many of those false non-truthful statements about salvation those non-biblical concepts of salvation and you can distill them down into an illustration which has five points the points all of which form the word tulip i spoke this morning about a better tulip well that's a contrasting word better what are we contrasting it with what are we comparing it to we're comparing it to a terrible tulip there is another tulip out there, and you need to be aware of it. There is other teaching out there that is not conducive to the Word of God, that did not come from the pen of inspired writers. It came from the mind of the devil. Its sole purpose is to mislead you, to lead you off the path of righteousness and onto the road to perdition. So we need to be made aware of it so that when we hear it or see it, we can identify it and say that's not biblical. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says this or that instead. So let's talk about this terrible tulip. It begins with a T. It begins with total hereditary depravity. The phrase simply means this. You are born wicked. You are born completely depraved, lacking in righteousness, ungodly, unjust untrue to what god would consider a holy being you are not very good you are not good you are not in the image of god you are created in the image of the devil you are totally hereditarily depraved and deprived of god's righteousness you are hereditarily that way in other words this terrible condition that you just found yourself in when you were born was passed on to you mother to daughter, father to son, and down the line, going back all the way to the very beginning. Now this does not come from the Bible. So in order for me to tell you a little bit about this, I have to go to a different source. And I don't trust my eyesight, so I'm going to read it from here, but you can see it behind me perhaps. But this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith as accepted by the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America as its standard of doctrine at its first General Assembly, 1789. Before I read the quote, if you're wondering what that is, have you ever been asked, do you people in the churches of Christ, do you have a creed book? I had a phone call just last week with somebody who was asking me about what I believe. Asking the North Heights Church what we believe, which is not a question that I'm prepared to answer because I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me, and so that's how I answered it. Well, I'll tell you what I believe, and so I talked about what I believe. 
And this lady eventually got around to saying, well, do you have some creed book? Do you have something that I can look at so I can understand what it is that you believe about the Bible? And I said, I can give you a Bible. If you want to know what I believe about the Bible, here's the Bible. That's my creed book. Hold up your Bibles, please, everybody. That's your creed book. That's your book that you go to for the source of information that you need to know about what you believe. But the Presbyterians have this Westminster Confession of Faith as accepted by the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America as a standard of doctrine, 1st General Assembly, 1789. It says, quote, Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, from this original corruption, whereby we are all utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Adam and Eve sinned. And because they sinned according to this book, which is not the Bible, according to this book, which was not written by God, according to this book, because Adam and Eve sinned, their sin passed, is passed down hereditarily, generationally, son to next son to next son daughter to next daughter to next daughter and on and on it goes you are who you are and you are depraved and you are deprived and you cannot do anything about that which is a point we'll get to later in this but you are what you are not by your choice you are what you are just because of someone else's choice imposed upon you that is total hereditary depravity is that true no it is not what does the bible say the Bible says, 1 John 3, verse 4, that sin is a result of you deciding. Sin is a result of me choosing. That sin comes about when we transgress the law of God. The word sin is defined for you, not as a hereditary condition, but as a choice that you make. Sin is the, old Bible says, transgression, to step over the line. Here is the line of what is right. On this side is right, on that side is wrong. And you are here, and when you step over that line, you choose to sin. A child who is born can make no choices. A child who is born does not just do anything. They have to be led to do. They have to be forced to do. Forced to bottle. Forced to be changed. Forced to sleep. But you must choose to sin. And when you choose to step over God's line, that is the definition of the word sin. Sin is not inherited. Ezekiel 18 verse 20. The soul, the prophet says, the soul that sins it shall die, and the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the son, or neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be on him. In other words, if you do righteousness, then you're considered a righteous person, and if you do wickedness, you're considered a wicked person. How you are born and what condition you are found has nothing to do with it, because you must choose to do righteousness or to do wickedness. James 1, 13 through 15. James, the writer, tells you exactly how sin comes into play. And he even uses a birthing illustration. An illustration of birthing. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. Because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. You hear the illustration of this thing which comes into conception and grows into maturity. Well, that sounds like the life cycle of a person. It is in the illustrative form 
But what is James actually saying? You are drawn away of a lust and you're enticed by the devil who, as um, Jim and I were talking before the sermon this, this evening, the devil is conveniently left out of all of this. He is totally nowhere to be found. The whole reason you sin and that you're wicked and all that has everything to do with God and Adam and Eve and the devil's nowhere to be here. That should be a giant red flag. But what James says is every man is tempted to sin, drawn away by the devil after something that you lust. And then when you engage in that sin, either mentally or physically, when you engage in that sin, it produces in you. When you engage in that action, it produces in you depravity it produces in you ungodliness it produces within you wickedness it's something you must choose to do but the most nailed to the wall defeat way i can give you this uh, bible doctrine to to nail the false doctrine to the wall using the bible the easiest way to hammer this point home is to tell you something that the wise man solomon said in ecclesiastes 7:29. he said men are made upright Men are made upright, and then they go about devising, creating, thinking up ways to do evil. Now the whole point Solomon's making there is found in the latter half of that statement. He's lamenting the fact that people just keep coming up with new ways to do evil. But he just tosses out as this aside, he just tosses out as this understood fact to make that point, men are made upright. See, if I don't have this verse, if I just have the other verses, then I might be led to believe I could be born sinful and then just keep choosing to sin. But Solomon doesn't say that. He says you're made upright. When you start, you start godly. When you're created, you're created righteously. When you are made, you're made beautifully. And then you grow up and you choose to sin and become ungodly, to devise, invent evil things. Total hereditary depravity is not what the Bible says. And that's the two of this terrible tulip. Let's keep, that's the T of this terrible tulip. Now go from T to you. Unconditional election. Again, I would refer you to, and I'll have the text on the screen, yes. The Westminster Confession of Faith of the Presbyterian Church, USA. This is from chapter 111, entitled, Of God's Eternal Decree. It says this, quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own free will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot either be increased nor diminished. You are what you are because God has made you that way. He has finished making everybody the way they are or will ever be and it's never going to change. You were either created by God to be righteous whether you want to be or not or you were made, created by God to be depraved, wicked, denied His righteousness whether you want to be or not. That's it. That's done. It's decided. And He knows everybody whoever will be and He knows how many of those are going to be good and how many of those are going to be bad. He decided it by His own free will. Your free will has nothing to do with it. In fact, your free will doesn't even exist. This is about God's free will. God chose who will be saved and who will be condemned. God chose who will be elect and who will be reprobate. Today, the word is unelect because reprobate just sounds too politically incorrect. But the old word was reprobate. You will be either the elect or the reprobate. You will be either the saved or you will be the lost. And you have no say in the matter. God's already decided for you. It is unconditional. You had nothing to do with it. You can do nothing to change it. It is decided. It is sealed. It is signed. It is delivered. It's locked in, baked in, and finished. You're either saved or lost. Conveniently. Coincidentally? No. Conveniently. 
Everyone who believes this and who teaches this and who preaches this and who follows this believes themselves to be the elect. The odds are against them. Somebody's going to be wrong. But they always are quick to say, well, are you part of the elect? Oh, sure, I'm part of the elect. How do you know? Have you talked to God about this? Can you find it in the book somewhere? No, they can't find it in the book. They don't know if their name is in there or not. But they choose to believe they're elect, but they don't know. Someone else might be living righteously. Someone else might be living because they think they're elect, and they might not be. And they're wasting their entire life being good. They're spending all their days doing good things and living righteously and being kind and being merciful when they are condemned. God predetermined they were condemned and they're never going to not be condemned. Okay, what does the Bible say? Can we leave this behind for a second? The Bible says a few things. It says God does not pick and choose who is saved or who is lost, which I think pretty much answers it, but let's keep going. That's Peter standing in the house of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. Verse 34 and 35, he says, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now hang on just a second. Because God is very much, in a lot of other ways, a respecter of persons. Throughout the Old Testament, God is picking and choosing people to bless or to condemn. God chose Jacob and not Esau. God does that all the time, but Peter's not talking in general. Peter is talking specifically about the salvation which Jesus offers. God does not respect one party over another. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't pick and choose. Peter keeps going. God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that fears God and works righteously is accepted of him. Sounds like I have the free will choice here. I get to choose to fear God. I get to choose to work righteously. And by choosing that, I get to be accepted by him. I'm not accepting him. He's accepting me. He accepts me when I choose to do righteously, when I choose to do the things he tells me to do. The confession of faith of the Presbyterian Church and the others who adhered to that Calvinistic doctrine. All this came from John Calvin and his pie-in-the-sky ideas. Gutter ideas, not pie-in-the-sky. All of his ideas. That idea, all of that came from this idea that you don't have free will, that God is the one who picks and chooses. But Jesus continually, Jesus' apostles continually put the ball in your court. He's done the work, now you choose to accept it or reject it. Your Bible tells you the devil is a threat to you. Remember the devil? Because they didn't. He's not in their book. He has nothing to do with any of this. You're wicked not because of the devil. He does not tempt you. He does not allure you. He does not deceive you. He doesn't cause you to fall away. He doesn't do any of that. No, it was just how you're born. He has nothing to do with anything. He's completely gone. How convenient that the prince of darkness and the king of lies has nothing to do with any of this. He's just standing in the shadows and people are just choosing to believe that they're lost or saved. No. You know, the devil's very much at work here. And Peter says as much in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober, be clear-minded, be vigilant, stout-hearted, because your adversary, the devil, is like a growling lion seeking, walking about seeking whom he may devour. Question, who is he seeking? Let's, let's pretend I will choose to believe that I'm one of the elect. So I'm elect, therefore the devil can do nothing to me. He's not seeking to devour me, therefore, right? Because what's the point? He's wasting his time. I'm already been, I'm already been picked. Let's say Phil is, sorry, Phil, is reprobate. He's been condemned. It's it. it doesn't matter what he thinks. It doesn't matter what he wants. That's it for him. So why is the devil seeking to devour him? Sounds like he's already been devoured. See how the devil gets lost in the shuffle here? Peter says the devil's still a threat. And if he is, that means you better watch out. And Calvinism says you don't need to watch out. You're either picked or you're not picked. Either way, like, how, like heaven and hell is just a game of dodgeball in third grade, and that's not truth. Your Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not some, 
but all have chosen to sin and all have decided to disobey God and all have therefore put themselves in a position where there is a bridge between them and God that they cannot breach, uh, they cannot bridge but through Christ it can be bridged through the grace of Jesus it can be bridged but this idea of you are over here and you're placed over here and you're placed over there the Bible doesn't say that again to put nail to the wall the most stern way I could defeat this one particular doctrine with a single verse is with the Lord's beautiful invitation Matthew 11 28 through 30 where the Master says, Come unto Me. Who? All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My, the old Bible says, yoke, which either sounds like an egg or an oxen, but that's not the meaning of the word. The word means school. Take My school upon you and learn of Me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your soul. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. That's a beautiful invitation. It is spoken to anyone who wants to hear it. If you feel burdened by this world, if you feel heavy laden by hardship, Jesus offers you relief. Jesus offers you rest. Jesus offers you respite. Who is He talking to? Because the reprobate, the condemned, the wicked, surely would be feeling those hardships. They would feel the weight of the shackles of the devil that God has locked them into, according to them. This person who is chosen, who is elect, will not feel that and certainly would not need to be invited to receive, seek relief because they've already got it. They were born into it, and this person is born without it. So clearly he must be talking to that person. Now just think about how evil Jesus must be. How evil, how wicked, how unworthy of your devotion, your prayers and your songs is Jesus Christ, if that doctrine is true, who tied you to railroad tracks while the train is barreling towards you, you cannot get away. And he has the audacity to stand three feet away, out of arm's reach, and say, come here and I'll save you. Come here, won't you come here and I'll save you. I'll give you rest. And you can't move, because he tied you to the tracks. That is not a God worth serving. And the unconditional election doctrine is not a doctrine worth having. It is not from the Bible. That's the T, that's the U, the L is limited atonement. And see how one follows naturally the other. If you are, if it is true that you are born totally hereditarily deprived, and if it is true that some are going to be chosen out of that, in spite of that, by God to be saved, then it must necessarily be some are not going to be saved. That some are going to be left out. Some are going to be left behind. Some are going to be rejected. And God's the one doing the rejecting. Therefore, the salvation of God bought through the cross of Christ is only going to be for some. You see how one leads to another, leads to another false doctrine. I give you another quote. This one comes from David N. Steele. Actually an Arkansan, but a Baptist theologian, highly respected writer and teacher. His words are these, quote, Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. His death was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In addition to putting away the sins of His people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation, including faith which united them to Him. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all whom Christ, for whom Christ died, thereby guaranteeing their salvation. Some get it, whether they want it or not. Whether someone else wanted it, if, they don't, if they're not chosen to get it, they don't get to have it. You might want it as much as you want. And who wouldn't want it? You don't get it. But if you do get it, even if you didn't want it, and you think, well, who wouldn't want it? Well, there's lots of people, if you invite them to the gospel, they'll scoff and spit in your eye and turn around and walk away. There's lots of people, if you tell them what Jesus offers them, they'll say no thanks. 
And yet some of those very people who want nothing to do with God, doesn't matter what they want, they've been grabbed, they've been held, they've been put in the pile of the saved. And only they have been. And some others who might desperately want it, who certainly need it, they have been chosen not to receive it. It is a limited salvation. Now we talked about the limited nature of salvation in a sense this morning. But the limitation this morning that we talked about, which the Bible teaches, is a limitation on you. In other words, you get to choose. And God has died for all, in spite of what this says. But you, being part of that all, can still choose to remove yourself from that all. Jesus died for me, but if I don't want to obey the gospel, then he will have died for me for nothing. He will be a wasted death for me. If I choose not to obey, I will limit the number of people who get to receive salvation. I choose to limit it. It's my limiting. I'm taking myself out of the equation. But this is teaching that God's doing that for you. That God's taking you out of the equation whether you want it or not. All right, what does the Bible say? Jesus died for the world, John 3.16. I mean, the audacity of David Steele. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only. All right, that's his words. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that whosoever, that anyone who wants can believe him and be saved by him. Jesus died, Romans 5, 6, for the ungodly. A statement which makes absolutely no sense when you consider who wrote it and what he said in light of what the Calvinist teaches. What does Romans 5 say? It says that for scarcely for a righteous man would one die. It, it rarely does someone willingly die for someone who's good. But on occasion, for a good man, someone might dare to die. But Christ commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Wait just a second. Who is talking here? That's the Apostle Paul. And what does he say? He uses the inclusive pronoun we. That we were ungodly. In due time, Christ died for we, the wicked. We, the sinners. Christ died for us. Inclusive pronouns he uses. So Paul puts himself in the position of those who need salvation. And Jesus came to die for Paul, a sinner. Is Paul reprobate or is Paul elect? Well, they'll say, of course, Paul's elect. But Paul puts himself in the category of all who are wicked and all who are in need of salvation. He does not designate a group over here who needs it but won't get it and a group over here who has it whether they want it or not. He just considers the whole of all of us, all needing and all receiving the salvation of Jesus Christ. God wants all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. But the verse that really just nails this to the wall is the Lord's famous statement in Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And he that doesn't will not be. You get to decide. You get to choose. He has given you the free will. He's paid the price for your salvation. He's extended the invitation to you. And now the ball is in your court. You get to choose. Will you believe and be baptized? If so, you will be saved. If you choose not to be, then you will not be. But it's up to you. God has done everything that God is going to do, but you still must do something. This, this tulip doctrine takes it completely out of your hands. And that's not just theologically lazy, that's very devilish, because you still have something to do about your salvation. God has done the work, but you must choose to obey or not. T-U-L-I for irresistible grace. Again, one follows another. If God has chosen you, if God who, if he sets his mind to do something, cannot be resisted. If God sets his mind to do something, you are not resisting the irresistible God. You cannot stop the insisting of God. You cannot resist God's insistence. 
So if in this case God is insisting that you will be saved, or if God is insisting that you will be condemned, there is nothing you can do about that. Now think about at least half of that for just a second, because this is irresistible grace. Irresistible condemnation, when you come to the judgment day and you are told, depart from me, I never knew you, you will beg and you will plead and you will cry and you will hope and you will wish and you will pray, but you will not receive an answer. Away you will go. And God's decision having been made will be irresistible. It will be unstoppable. It will be inarguable. That's true. That's what the Bible teaches. But this is saying that if God decides He's going to save you, then He's going to save you whether you like it or not. Let me read the quote to you here. This is again from David Steele. Um, Yeah, here it says, The grace which the Holy Spirit extends to the elect cannot be thwarted or refused. It never fails to bring them to true faith in Christ. If God sets His eyes on you, He's going to have you. He's going to take you whether you like it or not. And that is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches the literal opposite. It says the Spirit can be resisted. That's almost a verbatim quote from the preacher Stephen, Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your hearts and minds, you do always, who wants to guess what the word is there? Resist the prophets which God has sent to you and resist the Holy Spirit by which they spoke. You always are resisting the Word of God. You always are resisting the Spirit-inspired Word. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. God can be resisted. Isaiah 65, verse 2. All day long I stretch my hand out to a gainsaying and wicked and rebellious and disobedient people. Well, God, what are you doing stretching your hand out to a people you've already decided are going to be here or there? But that's not what God's decided. God has decided to save them, and they keep choosing not to receive it. I've stretched my hand out, and they keep saying no. God can be resisted. Jesus can be resisted. John 66, verse 6. After he just got through telling an audience of thousands, who, by the way, that same thousands audience, he just fed 5,000 men and women and children beside them uh, uh, food, bread, that just kept multiplying, and fish that kept multiplying when they were hungry. And so they're following him because they want food. He's the free meal guy, and Jesus perceives all they care about is filling their belly. So he turns and he basically says to them, if you want to continue following me, here's your meal. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And when they heard that, en masse, they turned away. They chose to resist Jesus' message. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, will you also go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter had the option of leaving. Peter knew how foolish that would be to choose to leave like all the other ones chose to leave. God can be resisted. The Spirit, the Father, the Son can be resisted. But the verse that really nails this for me to the wall is 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 where Paul expresses genuine concern over the church at Thessalonica that they might have been led astray by the tempter to the point where their work for them, their labor for the kingdom there, the church they had planted in Thessalonica that was starting to grow and blossom might wither and die, that their work might be in vain. That a church, a congregation of Christians might wither and die by the work of the tempter leading them astray. You can resist the blessings of God You can say no thank you to the salvation of Christ. You can say no to the words written by the Holy Spirit to your condemnation. There is no such thing as irresistible grace. You have a choice. T-U-L-I. The last one is P. And I wish it were true. But it is not. The perseverance of the saints. Listen, the Bible teaches perseverance of the saints. 
Here's what it teaches. Saints, persevere. It teaches it not as a noun, but as a verb. It teaches it as a thing you must do. In spite of all the hardships of the devil, in spite of all the hardships that he puts on you, keep going, keep fighting, keep marching to Canaan's land. It is there waiting for the taking. You will have it in one day. Keep going, don't stop. Keep going, don't stop. Persevere. Endure. But this doesn't teach that. This teaches that whether you want to or not, you're locked in, baked in, the pie is finished and done, and you're going to be what you're going to be whether you want to be or not. God is locking you in and you're not allowed to leave. You will persevere whether you want to or not. And that is not truth. But it is what is said by here, this man, Sam Morris, a Baptist preacher and writer. Here's an excerpt from his article, Do a Christian's sins damn his soul? He says, quote, A Christian's sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, or his attitude toward other people has nothing whatsoever to do with the salvation of his soul. Listen to this. All the sins he may commit from murder to idolatry will not make his soul in any more danger. Here is Billy Graham from his website, billygram.org. Once you have accepted Christ, you are his forevermore. You, but you don't accept Christ. Christ has to accept you. So you come to Christ and you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you put your sins to death and you become remade into his image, but you don't accept him. He accepts you. And what men like Billy Graham and other Baptist and, and denominational public speakers and impassioned you know, crusaders who would fill their audiences with thousands of people, he, what he would say to them, what they would say to all of them is, Billy Sunday before him and all those sort of people, they would always say is, just give God your heart. Just give God your heart. Listen, God does not want your stinking dirty heart. God wants to wash your heart clean. He doesn't want your dirty heart. He wants your heart to be clean. You clean your heart, you wash your heart, you wash the sins away from your heart, and then your heart will belong to Jesus. And then the devil will come after you and tempt you to muddy it up again. Because what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say you persevere whether you want to or not? No. The Bible says fallen away Christians will suffer if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in those pollutions and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Because it is like the, the old saying ring true, a dog going back to his vomit or a pig that's been washed going back to its mud. That's how God perceives a Christian who goes back to sin. It's a dog going back to its sickness to eat it. It's a pig that's been washed going back to the mud once again. A Christian can go back, and it's worse for them if they do. Those who fall back will be destroyed. The just shall live by faith, but God says those who fall away, his soul will have no pleasure in them. If you choose to draw back, if you choose to turn away the soul of God, the essence of who he is, his holiness and righteousness will have no pleasure in you. You do not want God not having pleasure in you. But if you, according to the Hebrews text, draw back, turn away, go away from what you have, that's exactly what will happen. And then the writer's, writer of Hebrews says, but we are not going to be like those who draw back, are we? We're going to be those who keep on believing to the salvation of our soul. That's perseverance. But it's not a thing enforced on you. It's not a thing imposed on you. It's a thing you choose to do. Most famously. In fact, really, more than even this next one, this, this is really what nails it to the wall. What we're talking about here is once saved, always saved. It sounds great. It's wonderful to think about. It'd be great if it was true, but it's too good to be true. It's a lie of the devil. It's there to convince you that you can live however you want and do whatever you want and you'll be okay. And that is not true. You must be faithful. You must do what is right. You cannot do what is wrong. And when you do what is wrong, you must repent. 
lest you be condemned. You can be forgiven. And if you don't live right, you can be unforgiven. That's the parable of Matthew 18, where Peter asked the Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said, put a couple zeros on that. Seventy times seven. And then he teaches the parable. He teaches the story of a master who had a servant that owed him a great sum of money. He could not pay it back. And this master with a heart of benevolence and mercy and grace forgave the debt. Forgave the debt. He didn't say pay me later. He didn't say here's half off. He said there is no more debt. I am wiping the debt clean. That sound familiar? And then that forgiven servant found one of his servants who owed him a paltry amount of money. Demanded to be paid. He who was forgiven would not accept the offer of mercy. When this other servant said to him, I can't pay, please have mercy on me. The same words he said to his master, he was not merciful. He was not charitable. He was not gracious. He would not give to him what had been given to him. And when the master heard that this servant of his was not forgiving after he had been forgiven, he said, throw him in the prison until he can pay back all the debt that he owed me. I thought you forgave that debt. I did. Now I'm unforgiving it. Don't tell me once saved, always saved. That, soul, that servant was not once saved, always saved. He wasn't forgiving, so he stopped being forgiven. But the verse that really nails it to the wall is Acts chapter 8, 30, 22 and 23, where Peter is talking to Simon, a former con man, a former con man. Simon also believed and was baptized. It says about 10 verses before this. A person who believes and is baptized shall be saved. We already read that, Mark 16, 16. Simon believed and was baptized, therefore Simon is saved. And then Simon saw what Peter and John could do, laying hands on people, giving them miraculous gifts. And he said, here's some money. Give me that power to do that too. And Peter said, your heart is not right in the sight of God. This is not for you to do. You need to repent of this wickedness and pray God that the, heart, the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. You need to repent and pray to be forgiven. What would happen if he didn't repent and pray? I can tell you what, what was his name? I can tell you what Sam Morris would say. He would say it doesn't matter because anything from murder to idolatry, anything from murder to spitting in the eye of Jesus himself doesn't matter. So Sam Morris would say that Peter didn't need to say anything to this guy, that Peter could just say, you're fine, doesn't matter. You want to you be a, a, a person who bribes us? You want to be a person who abuses the power of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, sure, fine, whatever. Go on and do that. Sin as much as you want. Everything's okay. You'll persevere whether you want to or not. But that's not what Peter said. He said, you need to repent and pray that the thought of your heart may be forgiven. And then Peter says, because I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the shackles of iniquity. I perceive that you are once more chained to the devil. You who believed and were baptized and had your sins washed away, you have now chosen to go back to sinful ways. And if you don't change that, before it's too late, it'll be too late. Now that's what Simon said. That's what Peter said, Simon Peter. But I remember being a 12-year-old boy at the Haddaville Missionary Baptist Church and sitting in the padded pew while Pastor Kenneth Strickland read from this text and decided to add to what the Word of God said. And he will give account at the last day for his blasphemy because he inserted the word yet where it did not belong. He read it like this. Peter said to him, I perceive that you are yet or still in the gall of bitterness, and yet in the bonds of iniquity. And by inserting that word yet, he made it sound as if 
Simon, this former con man, was still a con man and had always been a con man, had not been saved, but was still a sinner and had never actually been converted. And that's why he's told here to repent and pray because that's what he would say you need to do to be saved is just repent and pray. And so that's what this guy is told to repent and pray because he was still in the bonds of sin, but he was not still in the bonds of sin. He was not still a sinner. He had been a saint. He had been a sinner and then was made a saint and then went back to being a sinner. And if he didn't change to go back to being a saint through repentance and prayer, he would have died a sinner and he would have died lost. So perseverance of the saint sounds good. You know what else sounded good? Go ahead and eat from the tree. It'll make you like God. Lots of things the devil say sound good. Not a bit of it is true. Least of all any of this. This is heresy. And it is pervasive all over the religious world. Billy Graham doesn't believe in total, didn't believe in total hereditary depravity, but he did teach perseverance of the, saint, of, the, of the saints. You'll find people who will hold to one and not the other because they don't know the origin story of this heresy. They don't know that it doesn't come from God. They don't know that it comes from men. But what I believe does not come from men comes from the Word of God. And it does not teach total hereditary depravity. It does not teach unconditional election. It does not teach limited atonement. It does not teach irresistible grace. It does not teach the perseverance of the saints, at least not in the way that John Calvin and his followers taught it. What the Bible does teach is what we talked about this morning is the salvation of Jesus Christ, which is offered to everybody, to anybody, to whosoever will, let him come and drink of the waters of life freely. And if that is you, if you need to drink from those waters of life, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you were born because you were born good. It doesn't matter what you did after that. You chose to be a sinner. The opportunity of salvation is available to you. If you have a need, please make it known right now. Please come as we stand and sing.